Are you interested in stories of ghosts, poltergeists and the paranormal? Do you love an amazing tale of an unsolved mystery? A strange disappearance? How about a UFO encounter or even a first-hand sighting of a creature that should only exist in your nightmares? Why not join us over at the Haunted UK podcast where every two weeks we delve deep into the tales of the strange and unusual, the unsolved and the downright weird. The Haunted UK podcast is available on all major platforms as well as being on Instagram and Coffee. So why not give us a follow and get involved with the show? Thanks for listening and we really hope that you'll join us for our next episode. And on that note, it's back to the show. Do not attempt to adjust the settings on your device. The sounds you hear are not hallucinations. You have crossed into the domain of a traveler that has a taste for telling tales about the macabre, the strange, the unusual, and the morbid. Don't be shy. Step inside and take a seat by the fire and enjoy your visit into the world that is the Nightcap Nebula. Welcome, my friends, to the Nightcap Nebula podcast, where nothing is taboo or wicked, and the topics are always eerie and intriguing. When last you left the fire, I was telling tales of Earth's strangest vanishings and afflictions, but that was only half of it. There is a part two, and you just found it. What more could I possibly say? Oh, trust me, there is plenty. You have heard about disappearances, ghost ships, and ailments that have no real reasoning or origin. But what about objects and phenomenon that is here one minute and gone the next, leaving a gaping hole of confusion? Never fear, that is why I am here. Let's get into it with part two of Earth's unbelievably unreal and unsolved. Scrolls, ancient tomes, and other related readings have revealed much about human history including its deepest, darkest desires. Some, however, have puzzled and had many clutching their bottle of expensive liquor in teeth-clenching irritation, trying to crack their codes. One such source of insanity is an ancient book known as the Voynich Manuscript that remains a terribly unsolved piece of literary history. The Voynich Manuscript dates back to as early as 15th century and completed somewhere in Central Europe. It is said to be first owned by English astronomer John Dee, who received it from his father Roger Bacon and purchased by Holy Roman Emperor Rudolf II. It was noted by Dee that the book contained hieroglyphics that his father spent many hours trying to decipher, but to no avail. It reportedly changed hands way too many times to count, but in 1903, it eventually ended up at a secret book sale in Rome, put on by the Society of Jesus, and stayed with them for a few years, eventually circulating once more among various book collectors, until it was purchased by Voynich from the Jesuit College near Rome. 
After Voynich died in 1969, his widow sold it to H.P. Cross of the Yale Library, where it has stayed. The manuscript has drawn international intrigue, and scholars have described it as having magical or scientific text, containing botanical, figurative, and scientific drawings of a provincial but lively character drawn in ink, with vibrant washes in various shades of yellow, brown, blue, green, and red. Summaries of the book seem to be unanimous in what it displays, and they are as follows. Botanicals containing drawings of 113 unidentified plant species. Astronomical and astrological drawings including astral charts with radiating circles, suns and moons. Zodiac symbols such as fish, Pisces, a bull, Taurus, and the archer, Sagittarius. Nude females emerging from pipes or chimneys and courtly figures. A biological section containing a myriad of drawings of miniature female nudes, most with swelled abdomens, immersed or wading in fluids, and oddly interacting with interconnecting tubes and capsules. An elaborate array of nine cosmological medallions, many drawn across several folded folios and depicting possible geographical forms. Pharmaceutical drawings of over 100 different species of medicinal herbs and roots portrayed with jars or vessels in red, blue, or green, and Continuous pages of text, possibly recipes, with star-like flowers marking each entry in the margins. The problem isn't in interpreting the images. It is the language which has remained mostly an enigma, until 2017, when a history researcher named Nicholas Gibbs claims that it is an indecipherable cipher of a medieval health manual that is copied from other sources, where the indecipherable text was abbreviated medical recipes. In a twist of irony, many experts immediately shut this theory down, saying that other experts had already made these discoveries, which put Nicholas in a tough spot, basically being accused of trying to alter what has already been stated. Many thought this was a play at trying to get recognized with even the curator of Harvard Houghton Library, John Overholt, amusingly tweeting, We're not buying this Voynich thing right. Renee Zanbergen, a researcher of the manuscript who runs the popular site Voynich.nu, made a similar argument about the medical nature of the text on his website. The following section of the Voynich MS has traditionally been called the biological section, though others prefer to call it the balianological section. The Imperio qualifies it as the most unusual part of the Voynich MS. It contains drawings of so-called nymphs, similar to the ones mentioned above in the zodiac section populating arrangements of pipes or vessels and what may seem like baths or clouds. Many illustrations leave the impression of representing a chemical, alchemical, or natural process. They've also been compared to organs in the human body. Several people have, independently from each other, pointed out a resemblance of these illustrations with the Voynich manuscript of the Belnese Puteolanus, a description of some medicinal baths written in the 13th century. Davis added that Gibbs's claim rested on the existence of a lost index for the manuscript, which contained illnesses and the plant recipes they corresponded to. For Davis, even though there are missing pages in the manuscript, there is no evidence that those pages were an index. In 2016, a pair of decoders in Canada also claimed to have deciphered some part of the manuscript. They used a computer program they created to decode the text. They believed the words were vowelless alphagrams or anagrams written alphabetically. They trained the algorithm to decipher 380 different language versions of the United Nations Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Once the algorithm had a high success rate in matching the anagrams to modern words, they fed in some of the texts and found 80% of the words could be Hebrew. But a Hebrew translator could not convert the text into coherent English, so they turned to Google Translate, as no other scholars were available. 
After correcting spelling errors, they came up with one sentence. She made recommendations to the priest, man of the house, and me and people. They also translated some words in the herbal section, coming up with farmer, light, air, and fire. However, there were numerous problems with this study, including the reliance on Google Translate and how they created an algorithm to identify modern languages and not medieval ones. Theories abound about what the manuscript actually means, some saying it is gibberish sold by occult philosophers, others saying it is pigeon prayer book from a heretical Christian sect. Even if it is a fake, it is an elaborate one, wrote Reed Johnson, a Russian language lecturer in The New Yorker. A 20th century scam artist would have had to have located 120 sheets of blank 600-year-old vellum in anticipation of the invention of radiocarbon dating, which did not yet exist when the manuscript first re-emerged in 1912. Scholars remain deeply divided over the question of whether the text is likely to be meaningful. But the distribution of letters and words is anything but random, even demonstrating statistical features generally associated with natural language texts, features that weren't discovered until the 1930s. Ultimately, he wrote, it is the resistance to being read is what sets it apart. Personally, I think it was a farmer's almanac, or a possible how-to on triaging wounds and curing basic ailments using advanced holistic techniques. Then again, my theories are no more accurate than these people. Maybe you can come up with your own and end up in the future scrolls of history. A true student of history knows that nothing is really concrete in terms of certain events. Just reliable eyewitnesses and properly recorded data. Was Jesus a real person? Did the Greeks really invent math? So many questions and never enough answers. One of the biggest ones definitely has to be who came to America first. Most believed that it was Columbus. But that has been shown to be a lie, with the earliest settlers being South American and North American tribes inhabiting the lands for longer than anyone can guess. The only thing Columbus did was systematically slaughter their ancient ways and rip apart their lives. Then there is the other side of the coin that may append every and any ideas humans previously had about who was the true founder of America and if Native Americans are the real settlers. The mystery starts in Guanabara Bay, which is the second largest in the southeast region of Brazil off the coast of Rio de Janeiro, spanning around three tennis court lengths and 100 feet of water. Being the second largest bay in the area, it has had its share of oceanic traffic over the years, only being a few miles from the shore. As accessible as it is, this is not a popular tourist destination and locals mostly treat it as any other beach, that is until 1976 with lobster divers suggesting reports of ancient jars covered in barnacles at the bottom of the bay. Within a short period of time, a diver by the name of Jose Roberto Texiera actually brought evidence of the same by producing two jars. The jars turned out to be made of ceramic material and were tall and tapered in shape. The jars were known as amphorae and were primarily used by ancient Greeks, Phoenicians, and Romans. These jars served as useful in carrying essential commodities such as water, grain, wine, or oil during sea voyages. After locals claim the sightings are legitimate, a maritime archaeologist by the name of Robert Marks investigated it. The discovery was not met with much glee. In fact, he was mocked and accused of being part of an elaborate hoax. 
To clear this up, he employed an expert from the Brazilian agency, Phoenicia Pesquesas Arquilocas, to help him bring out a massive count of underwater relics to public recognition. After many exploratory dives, Robert Marx established that the ruins were from an ancient shipwreck, which further established historical accuracy that had undeniable Roman features. Marx had stated that he dug one meter deep in the mud with his hands to uncover pieces of amphorae and, in addition, Marx also found some pieces of amphorae attached to coral and rock formations. Marx had around 2,000 excavations on land and water, and if that wasn't enough, he had also uncovered two of Columbus's ships on the seabed of the Caribbean. Most interestingly of all, he even helped in discovering the bones of Christopher Columbus himself in a cathedral in Spain. Spain knighted Robert Marx for reiterating the voyage of Columbus, including the detailed costumes alongside 15th century technology. As the evidence of foreign discoverers arriving in the Americas now potentially goes back to the Romans, the perspective needed to shift since many explorers had already apparently found their way to the New World way before Columbus, as many historians had already postulated, even establishing sophisticated trade routes and nautical commerce much earlier than anyone thought. As a matter of fact, many of the explorers were almost a thousand years ahead of Columbus in exploring the Atlantic as well as Pacific sides of North and South America, which coincides with my previous point that Columbus was basically nothing more than a fraud. But of course, skeptics had to rear their ugly heads no matter what, and indeed they did, calling Marx a glory hound only out for treasure and creating a narrative that besmirched Columbus's accomplishments. They even accused him of being a faux archaeologist despite his previous achievements in a brutal smear campaign. The most scathing critique of Robert Marx has been presented in an article by Jonathan Kirsch in the LA Times. Jonathan pointed out that Marx created and exaggerated findings in the world around him for supporting the narrative he wanted to present. In addition, he also accused Robert Marx of being banned from Brazilian underwater sites due to theft of artifacts from the seabed, but none of these claims were ever substantiated. So the question remains, what is the true origin of these jars? There is much evidence that the jars were, in fact, from a Roman shipwreck, but sadly, most of the theories hinges on the credibility of Robert Marx, who remains a questionable person. It has gotten so volatile, in fact, that in 1985, Marx accused the Brazilian Navy of dumping a thick layer of silt and sand on the remains of the sunken ship that he discovered. As a result, Brazil barred the diver from entering the country and placed a ban on all underwater exploration along the country's 4,600-mile coastline. Now, the craziest thing about this action is definitely hotly debated, as no official reasoning has been given, but Marx firmly believes it is for a very sketchy and dubious reason. They are afraid the discovery could eventually rewrite history. If Romans had infiltrated the area, it would prove that they were most likely among the first explorers to set foot in that region over 1700 years ago that would tarnish Brazilian history. To give you an idea of just how detrimental this might be, the Brazilian church, politicians, economic leaders, and general populace would be forced to reconsider whether Portuguese navigator Pedro Alvarez Cabral really had discovered the country in 1500. Being a heavily Catholic country with strong ties to tons of communities, this would shake family values, traditions, and threaten everyday life. So, it is no surprise that if what Marx is stating about the Navy's maneuver to bury the truth might be more valid than you think. Today, the search for answers is stalled thanks to this fear and may never be uncovered or ever realized. When the majority believes in what is false, the truth becomes a quest. But in this instance, when presented with potential truth, the public detests it and does whatever it can to keep it from seeing the light of day.
The shortest length between two points is a straight line and is supposedly impossible to create a perfect circle freehand. A lot of artists have tried to do the latter and less than a few have succeeded. That being said, there are exceptions in the world where nature seems to have laughed in the faces of mortals, creating what they could not, and the tragedy is they've existed almost as long as the earth has existed. Let's have a look at the Klerksdorp spheres. The bizarre origin of these perplexing things begins 3 billion years ago in Autostall, South Africa, where the spheres were formed out of pyrophyllite deposits. The tiny balls, ranging in size from 0.5 to 10 centimeters, with even latitudinal grooves in them, were created when minerals formed in the space between sediments in the way crystals can naturally form extremely precise shapes. It was the weathering of these specimens that then left them as tiny balls, with evenly spaced lines circumscribing them. The thing is, the nearly flawless shape of these minerals has only spurred the conspiracy theorist crowd who are convinced that these are proof that alien life exists. There are often other such objects that have had similar effects, such as the Costa Rican Dequis spheres that are different sized stone balls that are scattered all over the region, often near villages, which archaeologists have guessed were chiseled by an ancient civilization, but for reasons unknown. The Schooner Gulch rocks in Point Arena, California are best observed at low tide. The so-called bowling balls are actually a geological phenomenon known as concretion, sedimentary rock formed by a natural process wherein mineral cements bind grains of sand or stone into larger formations. These boulders are the result of millions of years of concretion and erosion, exposing the hard spheres as the mudstone on the cliffs receded around them. Countless other examples besides these are all over the globe and are mostly natural formations from Mother Earth herself. So, there you have it. Mystery solved. Moving on, nothing more to see here. <laughs> you didn't think I'd let you get off that easy, did you? The rabbit holes these spheres go down is quite dark and quite frankly bordering on cuckoo for Cocoa Puff territory, but pretty fun to delve into nonetheless, so here we go. In articles in the 1980s, they were speculated to be made by a higher civilization, a pre-flood civilization about which we know virtually nothing about, while the same museum curator who said this claimed that the spheres rotated of their own accord while locked in a vibration-free display case. Okay, sure, whatever. Then pseudoscientists threw in their two cents claiming that the spheres could only be manufactured despite being found in 3 billion year old rock giving more credibility to their fact-finding mission about these being linked to alien life. It's getting a bit ridiculous now, but there's more rational minds that prevail. The claims about the spheres caught the attention of geologist Bruce Cairn Cross in 2006, who wrote that he had been amused by an article that described them as mystery spheres, and by one program's choice to have a psychic examine the stones, declaring them to be the remains of an ancient spaceship. I would be amused hearing that too, I can't blame a scholar for getting a good chuckle. One of the most absurd accounts starts at NASA, where a sphere was brought to be tested and scientists told the unknown man who brought them that the sphere could have been only made in zero gravity because its balance was too perfect to have been created naturally. There is of course no documentation of the story and close examination of the spheres has disproved any claim of perfect balance, along with the claims that the spheres are harder than steel. 
Nonetheless, the spheres serve as a jumping off point for pseudo-archaeological claims that intelligent beings roamed the Earth 3 billion years ago, and that these beings made the spheres for religious or military purposes. Some even claim the spheres were an ancient form of information technology made by an ancient people millions of years before the first human women walked the Earth. With a 99% accuracy using geological explanations, there is still that 1% that provides articles, books, and deep web nut job entertainment that gives your brain a good mental jog. Extraterrestrials are a really fascinating aspect to Homo sapien history, and there is still no consensus on how Earth was really formed or how some materials ended up in and on the surface. So, even if the scientific data is proven, the origins still should be explored. Just remember to manage your expectations and keep your head grounded in reality. Hey listeners, my name is Kayla and I am the creator and host of a new podcast called Dark Tales from the Road. We cover true crime, spooky, creepy, and ghostly stories, and I want to take you state by state and country by country to bring you stories you may not have even heard of before, and also learn some history on the city and the state where it takes place. So join me on the road as we discover dark tales. New episodes are posted every Wednesday. I have an Instagram, Facebook, and a Patreon, all at Dark Tales from the Road. Thank you so much, and I hope everyone has a great day. The Amazonian rainforest has been in a steady decline for the past few decades due to deforestation and illegal gold mining, but it still holds a ton of secrets. Humans naturally destroy without thinking much about the consequences, and if it continues in this part of the world, these next objects might be gone for good. Deep in the heart of the rainforest lies an incredible site that experts have been trying to figure out for years called geoglyph trenches, as big as 36 feet wide and 13 feet deep. They were dug at various times between the 1st and 15th centuries and were discovered in the 1980s when deforestation for cattle ranching and other agricultural purposes exposed the earthworks. Jenny Watling, an archaeologist at the University of Sao Paulo in Brazil, led the research while she was a doctoral candidate at the University of Exeter in the United Kingdom and was on a quest to figure out how the landscape looked when the geoglyphs were built. The debate is that the Amazonian area has always been in constant flux due to human activity for the past 4,000 years, and the other side claims it has always been pristine, with very limited human influence. It was a very big undertaking, to say the least. To get to the bottom of these glyphs, and possibly the true nature of just how terraformed the area has become, Watling and her colleagues dug soil samples from holes 5 feet deep at two geoglyph sites called Jacosa and Fazenda Colorado in the state of Acre in far western Brazil. They analyzed these soils from charcoal, which indicates burning activity, as well as for stable carbon isotopes, molecular variations of carbon that can reveal whether the plants that used to grow there were grassland or forest species. Finally, the researchers examined the samples for phytoliths, microscopic plant remains that can help scientists identify specific ancient species. The researchers found that the forest has been bamboo-dominated for at least 6,000 years, indicating a certain level of resiliency to climate change and human activity. Whereas the rainforest in nearby Bolivia converted to savanna about 6,000 years ago during a dry period in the climate, the forest in Acre State stayed strong, Watling said. 
The analysis showed that charcoal layers appeared about 4,000 years ago, around the same time that archaeological evidence shows that humans moved into the region. The charcoal indicates fires, most likely human set, that would have been used to clear the forest. After humans started altering the landscape, palm trees became more common in the forest, the analysis showed. People likely encouraged palms to grow because they provided both food and building material, Watling said. Palms are some of the first trees to come back after the rainforest is cleared, though they're eventually outcompeted by larger, slow-growing trees. Because palms remained plentiful for around 3,000 years, humans were likely altering this cycle, preventing newer trees from overtaking the useful palms. After the geoglyphs were abandoned about 650 years ago, it's thought that palms became less common again. With this newfound knowledge, it was time to tackle the geoglyphs and pinpoint how long they had been around and perhaps why. Studying the timetables of intervention from early civilizations in the rainforest, with human activities beginning about 4,000 years ago, researchers found that the 2,000-year-old geoglyphs were relative newcomers to the archaeological scene and were most likely built within the forest that had already been altered, changing the composition of the surrounding area. In earlier research, maize and squash were found to have grown near the earthworks, but archaeologists have not seen evidence of villages or even persistent dwellings there. However, further research suggests that there are signs that rituals were conducted there with smashed, decorated pots found near the entrances to some geoglyphs. People might have come to the geoglyph site sporadically, perhaps during harvest seasons, to gather food from what Watling refers to as prehistoric supermarket. Despite all the findings and theories, Watlin and her team haven't come to a conclusion as to what they were really used for, but there are a good number of them scattered throughout the region and not just in the rainforest. Countries like Kazakhstan, Peru, and Jordan have their own variations as well. Those geoglyphs also have no real answers for experts. Starting with the largest geoglyph set, Geoglyphs of Acre, are more than 450 mysterious earthworks located in the Brazilian state of Acre. They found that contemporary indigenous peoples of Acre still protect the earthwork sites as sacred places and, unlike Brazilian residents in the area, avoid using the sites for mundane activities such as housing or agriculture and therefore protect these peculiar ancient remains in their own way. University postdoctoral researcher Dr. Sana Sanaluma and University of Helsinki researcher Dr. Purju Kastrini Vitana used this information to postulate that these sites were most likely once important ritual spaces where, through the geometric designs, certain members of the community communicated with various beings of the environment, such as ancestor spirits, animals, and celestial bodies. They communed with nature and did not put themselves above it, but rather embraced it. The geoglyphs were also especially used by the experts of that era, who specialized in the interaction with the non-human beings. Researchers strongly believed the sites were important for members of the community at certain stages of life, and the various geometric patterns acted as doors, or paths, to gain the knowledge and strength of the different beings of the environment. Visualization and active interactions with non-human beings were constructive for these communities. Experts added that the geoglyphs had a huge impact through the ages and its influence is reflected in modern pottery, fabrics, jewelry, and arts that the present people of the area create today. Even though the consensus is that these markings were used for a variety of reasons, there is still no definitive answers as to why they were created, how they started, and why they cease to be used now. There is no shortage of fascination with primitive humans and how they lived, what they ate, what they worshipped, and the creativity with what they had at their disposal. If people applied the same industriousness to their lives today in the right directions more than the wrong ones, there is no shortage to what could be accomplished.
Ancient Egypt evokes wonder, mythology, cultural marvels, and a sense of grandeur where the pharaohs ruled and the fear of plagues from the gods scared slaves and commoners alike. Some are familiar with said gods, such as Ra, Set, Osiris, and Isis. But they pale in comparison to something that may have taken a backseat to history, if not for a chance discovery, during one of many archaeological digs centuries after the sands claimed it, in the form of an airplane dubbed the Saqqara Bird. Found in Egypt near the Saqqara Pyramid in 1898 during the excavation of the Potamon tomb, this artifact, which resembles a bird, has been the topic of many debates and many explanations since it was uncovered. It is made of wood and estimated to be about 2200 years old. It is made of wood and, although its shape resembles a bird, it more closely resembles a modern airplane with the head of a bird. Furthermore, the hieroglyphs on the model airplane read the gift of Amon, and three small papyrus scrolls found near the artifact mentioned the phrase, I want to fly. All of these characteristics sparked a lot of intrigue. Dr. Khalil Masia, the physician who discovered the artifact in 1898, speculated that the ancient Egyptians first made it as a model of an aircraft they either built or witnessed gliding overhead. He claimed that the Saqqara bird had aerodynamic qualities and that the only thing missing from the bird was the tail wing stabilizer with which, again guessing, would have made it capable of flight. To support his claims, Messiah built a balsa wood model and added the tail and was very surprised to see that the model indeed flew. This led to decades of debates and arguments as to what it was with no resolution and was largely forgotten and ignored by scholars. Then, a little over a century later in 2002, another attempt to test the flying capabilities of the Saqqara bird was performed by a glider designer named Martin Gregory and surprisingly, it produced different results. He created a balsa wood model, and his conclusions were that without a tail wing stabilizer, it was unable to fly, and even with the tail, the performance was disappointing, suggesting it was probably meant to be a toy. Later, in 2006, Simon Sanderson, an aviation and aerodynamics expert, also constructed a replica of a Saqqara bird and tested its aerodynamics in a wind tunnel, but without the tail. The result was that it could produce four times its weight and lift, contradicting Gregory's test, which led to a stalemate with no conclusion. Regardless of the trials, mainstream archaeologists assert that the artifact is nothing but an actual bird that, by coincidence, resembles a glider, and although its function is unknown, most of them agree that it was a part of a masthead that was used on sacred boats. It is true that the Egyptians built an advanced civilization and were experts in architecture, engineering, and art, so it is possible that this was a model constructed in an effort to create a flying machine. The papyrus found next to the object, as well as the special characteristics of the Saqqara bird, would probably reject the notion that it was designed to be a mere toy. Taking into account that the bird depicted cannot be found anywhere in nature, it is possible to imagine that the ancient Egyptians could have seen something in the air, perhaps some kind of flying machine that they couldn't comprehend, thus transferring the bird face to the object. However, this is heavily speculated and admired in more mythology, with some scholars believing it was a child's attempt to reproduce the falcon head of the god Horus, but there is no evidence to support this claim. The parts of the glider are a bit off, as it has no feet, curvatures in odd locations, and a sunken part that looks like it would hold something. A passenger, perhaps. There are also no carvings or grooves to show that it is a bird, leading to more questions about what it is depicting. Today, it is still a great mystery as to just what the Egyptians wanted to say with this piece, and even more interesting is if there are more that haven't been unearthed that might contain more detail, giving researchers more of a clue as to what this part of the ancient world was trying to express. If history points out anything to humanity, it is that knowledge of the past can only go back so far, 
then the endless wild imagination of the mind tends to fill in the rest. The catch to that kind of rationalization to fill in the gaps is that you're both right and wrong. Let future minds decide which. And so at last we come to the end of part two, showcasing the cryptic perplexities of your terrestrial residence. Thank you so much for joining me. I hope you enjoyed listening as much as I enjoyed narrating. Be sure to check out all of my other segments and be sure to tune in on the 15th of every month for my new segment, Rapid Fire Reality, and the first of every month for regularly scheduled releases. Also, follow me on Instagram at the Nightcap Nebula Pod and look out for upcoming announcements for merchandise that is coming very soon. I greatly appreciate the support from you all. Until next time, be safe and stay curious.